Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream number 198. No chance it's prime. We are back after uh, a long hiatus that we um, had no choice but to have because we were uh, in motion across the globe and v visiting various places, which we will talk about during today's live stream. Yeah, we're gonna uh, we're gonna spend some time. I've written about it a few times now on Natural Selections, but spend some time talking about our time in Prague and then London and then my time in Denver, uh, from which I just returned yesterday and you got back from London a, a few days ago. Uh, so that's going to be what we do today. We're also going to have a live Q&A after this on Rumble only. Please join us on Rumble if you're watching this live, even if you're not. And join us on Locals, where there's a watch party going on right now. And uh, the Q&A, you can ask questions at darkhorsesubmissions.com. We're going to talk about various other things like our cool merchandise and Jake's micro pizza. Oh, um, man, is that stuff good. It is tasty. Yeah. New flavors, too. Uh, did you say flavors in pizza? Flavors. Um, um, styles, toppings? Styles? Uh, themes. Themes. New, new themes new of pizza Jake's themes. micro pizza. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, it's, yeah. Um, it's selling like hotcakes. I mean, you just uh, you, you can't get enough. I mean, pizza is a kind of a hotcake, isn't it? I guess technically, but um, but uh, but you can't get enough. That's my feeling about it. Having uh, um, been delighting in a good deal of Jake's micro pizza over our travels. Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah. Available now at darkhorsestore.org. Okay, uh, we're gonna jump right into the ads. We, as always, are very grateful for our sponsors. We start up with three ads at the top of the hour, and then none uh, throughout the rest of our time with you. And uh, without further ado, let's do that. And I think you were first. Wow, yeah. that's new. Yeah. Okay, uh, uh, I'm on really. it, though. You ready? Uh, our first sponsor is Vivo Barefoot. Um, and in fact, they were our very first sponsor for the podcast. And mm, our... They were not... One, one of, of our... Our, yeah. one of our mm -hmm. Okay, so friends, bear with me. Um, I'm having a little dyslexia flare-up, which often happens um, pretty much any time I read things. But They were early, though. They, they were, were one, they were one of our they first were, sponsors. They were, and they're, they're they remain one of our favorites because awesome shoes, which it doesn't even say on the paper, so dyslexia uninvolved. But Vivo Barefoot makes shoes for feet. Everyone should try them. Most shoes are made for someone's idea of feet, but Vivos are made for people who made by people who actually know feet. Uh, and word is spreading. People have approached us because of the Vivos that we are wearing, saying that they've heard they're good and they want to know if they are. Well, yes, indeed. These shoes are beyond comfortable. The tactile feedback from the surfaces you are walking on is amazing. They cause no pain at all because there are no pressure points forcing your feet into odd positions. They are fantastic. Your are, feet? My feet are fantastic. I have heard. Really? I mean, I'm not really one of those people who's overly focused on feet, but yes, I have heard they are spectacular. <laughs> <laughs> from you actually and i know you were kidding so anyway no not really they're pretty good i i mean i really don't care about feet yeah, either except either. so far as they're functional and all yeah um yeah they do i they have gotten yeah. me this far let's put it that way <laughs> where was i ah yes i was going to uh describe some of the uh the background of uh vivo barefoot see our feet are the product of millions of years of evolution Humans have evolved to walk, move. Actually, they're the result of billions of years of evolution. But uh, in foot form, it's really millions that they've had a chance to be uh, modified to the purpose. True. I think long-time listeners will be pleased to know that. Um, yes, modern shoes that are overly cushioned and strangely shaped have negatively impacted foot function and are contributing to a health crisis. People move less than they might in part because their shoes make their feet hurt. 
Enter Vivo Barefoot. Vivo Barefoot shoes are designed wide to provide natural stability, thin to enable you to feel more, and flexible to help you build your natural natural strength from the ground up. Foot strength increases by 60% in a matter of months just by walking around in them. Vivo Barefoot has a great range of footwear for kids and adults, and for every activity from hiking to training and everyday wear. They're also a certified B Corp that is pioneering regenerative business principles, and their footwear is produced using sustainably sourced natural and recycled materials with the aim to protect the natural world so you can run wild upon it. Vivo Barefoot shoes are always sold in pairs. Go to vivobarefoot.com and use the code DARKHORSE15 to get an exclusive offer, 15% off. Additionally, new customers get a 100-day free 100-day free trial so you can see if you love them as much as we do. That's V-I-V-O-B-A-R-E-F-O-O-T dot com and use the code DARKHORSE15 at checkout. Nice. Not all of that was on the page, but much of it was. Yeah, you sort of slid past one of the really important things here, which is that um, they are always sold in pairs. Unlike some shoe retailers who will remain nameless here, you do not place an order and get excited for when it comes and find only one shoe in the box. No, you will always get two. Always get two. Actually, Mm -hmm. did you know that my great-great-grand-uncle invented the idea of selling shoes by the pair and ironically died penniless with one shoe? Terrible, terrible story. It is a tragic yeah it was it was bad but mm-hmm. um may he rest in peace mm. second ad <laughs> our second sponsor this week is american hartford gold if you've been listening to our course for any length of time then you're already tuned in to just how incompetent and unstable many of our institutions are becoming and it's getting worse daily. Interest rates are sky high. We are caught between runaway inflation and a recession. While being assured that all is fine, the cost of food, housing, medical care, schools, everything is climbing. While the quality declines. Our leaders are increasingly nonsensical. All of this threatens businesses, jobs, and retirement funds. Finding ways to secure your nest egg and insulate your wealth is more important than ever. And adding precious metals to your assets is a great way to stabilize your investments and protect yourself financially. American Hartford Gold is a precious metals dealer that can help you do just that. American Hartford Gold helps individuals and families protect their wealth by diversifying with precious metals. They make it simple and easy to protect your savings and retirement accounts with physical gold and silver. With one short phone call, they can have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k. They are the highest rated firm in the country with an A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now, they will give you up to $5,000 of free silver on your first qualifying order. Contact them today by visiting the link in the episode description below or call 866-828-1117. That's 866-828-1117 or text DARKHORSE to 998899. Once more, the phone number is 866-828-1117 to reach American Hartford Gold or you can text DARKHORSE to 998899. All right, and our final sponsor this week is Ancient. It's Armra. Armra is colostrum. Armra itself is not so ancient, but colostrum is. Colostrum is the first food that every mammal eats, produced in the first two or three days of an infant's life, and is nutritionally different from the milk that comes in afterwards. Mammals have existed for 300 million years, give or take a few tens of millions, and the first food every mammal has eaten is colostrum. Colostrum serves many vital functions, including that of protecting and strengthening strengthening the mucosal barriers of infants before their own barriers mature. Modern living breaks down your mucosal and immune barriers, and Armra is the superfood that builds it back. Armra colostrum protects and strengthens your body's barriers, creating a seal that guards against inflammation and everyday toxins, pollutants, and threats. 
Armour uses their cold chain biopotent technology to concentrate colostrum's 400 plus living nutrients into their most pure and bioavailable form. According to a review published in the journal Clinical Nutrition Open Science in 2022, bovine colostrum has been used to treat cancer, AIDS, polio, heart disease, and rheumatoid arthritis. It is a general anti-inflammatory, and its use in adults is known to increase lean muscle mass, improve athletic performance and recovery time, support healthy digestion, and reduce allergy symptoms. Armour starts with sustainably sourced colostrum from grass-fed cows from their co-op of dairy farms in the USA. They source only the surplus colostrum after calves are fully fed. Unlike most colostrums, which use heat pasteurization that depletes nutrient potency, Armour uses their cold chain biopotent tech, an innovative process that purifies and preserves the integrity of hundreds of bioactive nutrients while removing casein and fat to guarantee the highest potency and bioavailability of any colostrum available on the market. The quality control is far above industry standards, including being certified to be glyphosate free. Hallelujah. Benefits of Armour's colostrum also include clearing of blemishes, shiner, th- shiner? No, shinier. Mm. Let's go with shiner, thickier hair. That's not as attractive, is it? No. No, no, no. It does okay. not roll off the tongue. Benefits of Armour's colostrum does not include shinier, shiner, thickier hair, but rather shinier and thicker hair, clearing of blemishes, stabilization of blood sugar levels, and acceleration of fat burning. And colostrum has been shown to significantly improve fitness endurance and significantly decrease recovery time after intense exercise. Armour has a special offer for the Dark Horse audience. Receive 15% off your first order. Go to tryarmra.com slash darkhorse or enter Dark Horse to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A dot com slash darkhorse. Done. We are there. We are there. So. 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 Well, I mean... <laughs> I, 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 will, I would like to start by pointing something out. Okay. Uh, you and I are obviously in a slightly giddy mood, which is something that happens now and again. And we are in a slightly giddy mood at a moment where the oh. outside world is full of no shortage of uh, dire revelations. And I would just point out something I've, I've noticed in a different context, um, which is, you know, if you go to a funeral, it does not look like what you would imagine. There are moments that look like what you would imagine, and there are moments in which people are laughing and talking about things that are not exactly related to the the loss that people have suffered. Humans are a very interesting creature, and the ability to laugh in dire times is a uh, a very important tool because, of course, laughter is tied to some deep circuitry that is not especially well understood evolutionarily. It's been something I've spent a lot of time thinking about and uh let's just say our understanding of it is not it's not perfect mm-hmm. um, but in any case we bring the tools to bear that are useful and the idea that you know you would imagine that you know a world at war we are not globally at war at least not yet but a world at war would not be a world in which um where people were laughing you know if we think back on the depression, we see it in sepia tone. If we think back on the Holocaust and World War II, we don't think of uh, people experiencing anything other than the constant horror of um, that chapter of history. But of course, that's not the way it is. Um, you reminded me of a wonderful film that made this point. Yeah, um, while we were in Prague. Yeah. Yeah, called... Uh, Life is Beautiful. Life is Beautiful. And I've forgotten the name of the Italian actor who did such a brilliant job in it. Um, but in that film, uh, it's it's a fictional uh, story, but uh, a father in the concentration camp um, takes great risk and goes way out of his way to provide as much 
normalcy for his son as he possibly can, including a great deal of humor. Um, it's uh, Robert Roberto Benini. Benini, right? Benini, who That's also it. directed it. Oh, I had forgotten that. Anyway, um, so uh, I don't think we should uh, make any apology or be at all embarrassed about um, the fact that all of the features of life continue through all of the chapters of history, and that's simply the nature of being human. I, I would say, um, in fact, it's it's even better than that. Whoa. <laughs> I know. Um, no, I think we need to. I, yeah. I think we absolutely need to. And in fact, the, um, the piece that I posted on Natural Selections yesterday uh, makes this point in in two domains, but I think it applies um, to to humor, to sport, to a number of things outside of what I talk about, which is music and dogs, uh, which is to say that um, maybe especially, but certainly during a time of you know mass upheaval and dissonance, uh, both cognitive and otherwise, uh, what are the things that will actually bring us together? Remind us of our shared humanity and um, and our, you know the, the 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 shared fate that we have by virtue of being on a single gorgeous planet together and having nowhere else to go. Uh, let us let us refine our connection and. Um, music certainly helps us do that, and um, maybe we'll talk a little bit. But I, you know, I wrote about this experience we had in this pub in Prague, um, and and dogs bring us together as as well. Uh, and you know, I've been watching since really, I mean, forever. But I specifically started noticing uh, as the lockdowns began to ease a little bit, and then of course they came back on the west coast of the United States over and over and over again. But maybe midsummer 2020, when people were finally coming out of their homes again, I, you know, I've been walking in these parks. I'm seeing no one for a while and you know people finally started coming out and people were still mostly had been convinced to be scared of one another that humans are the enemy other humans are the things that will um you know give infect you and 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 you know kill you or your loved one as a result um but people with dogs were able to make connections because dogs dogs don't care right um and dogs despite everything that we are doing are on our team and if we let them uh, make the connections for us, even if we are too scared or uncomfortable or anxiety-ridden or whatever to, to do it, uh, then we might actually find new connection with people. Yeah, I, uh, of course, agree with this point. And I would also point out that there's an online version of this, which, of course, anything online is a, um, a uh, what is it, a lower dimensionality reflection of the same, mm -hmm. same principle. But the way, you know, if you look, uh, at the way people react to, it's not just dogs, but dogs, especially animals, um, you know, where somebody will post a video that will reveal that an animal has some kind of cognition that you wouldn't necessarily expect. You know, there's, I saw one the other day of a, a dog um, dragging its own sled up a hill and then sledding down and then taking the sled back up the hill. Mm -hmm. And anyway, the way in which all of the usual things that cause us to detest each other do not show up in those discussions, right? You could have, yeah. you know, uh, white supremacists and Jews or blacks in the very same conversation having the very same reaction to the very same animal because what it does is it, it brings out the humanity uh, in people and... Um, well, and, and, and so does music. So does shared music. So maybe this is... Um... I, I wrote about it, and you haven't seen what I wrote about it. Um, but I'm cu I'm curious to hear, um, without us having discussed it, uh, how you remember our experience uh, in the pub in Prague 
after the uh, the book baptism. So uh, we were we were in Prague for the launch of our book in Czech. Um, in the Czech Republic, uh, a book launch is called a book baptism, and they literally pour some champagne over the book. And um, the Institute H21, a fabulous organization, uh, published our book and invited us to come out there. And we met both the uh, the founder and philanthropist uh, behind the Institute and spent a lot of time with the director and several of the research associates there. And, you know, to a person, they are extraordinary. Uh, and, uh, and after, and, and we spent we, we we did several we did several podcasts while we were there and and some interviews and also spent some considerable social time with Adam the director um, and um, and and Carol the uh, founder and um, Suska and Eva and many other people there uh, and they were it was all wonderful but a particular night after the book baptism baptism in which um, several people who had shown up for the launch. Um, Czech people um, who either knew us from before or who heard, heard about this book and came to the launch uh, went to this pub. So I, I'm I'm now curious. You want me to describe it? Well, I, I've just written about it, so it'll be interesting to see how our how our reflections um, converge, what you focus on, and, and if there's any points of disagreement. Sure, I, yeah. I'd be happy to off the top of my head. Yeah. Um, anyway, the the uh, there's a lot to say about Prague, and so uh, yeah. just we will come back to this, and in fact. Um, Almost everywhere we went, we walked a lot, not even mm -hmm. just in the historic district, but out of the historic district into the parks that uh, the Czech people uh, frequent and, and all of this. And almost everywhere we walked was cobbled almost the entire way, um, not just the roads, but the sidewalks. And not all of it was old cobbling. A lot of it was new. And actually, this raises some interesting points. So it looked to me like that's expensive. Um, and I talked to some some Czech we call them Czechs, some Czech folks. I know Czech I can people. get it. Yeah, Czech people. Um, yeah, I don't know how we, we deal with citizens of the Republic in, in plural. But in any case, I talked to some of them. And their point was, no, actually, it's cheaper because you can get to the stuff underneath it and then repair a little piece. So anyway. It's like a, carpet tiles, but far classier. Far classier. But also, I don't know what damage we are going to discover we are doing to ourselves by walking on extremely flat, extremely hard surfaces mm -hmm. like concrete everywhere, but just the amount of normal feedback that removes from you uh, is substantial. And the cobbling, the slight mm -hmm. uh, wobbles and raised bits and all of that makes walking a much more lively experience. But imagine... Yeah. See earlier point around Vivo Barefoots, actually. Exactly. Right? I yeah. was thinking exactly that. Mm -hmm. But anyway, we came in uh, at night after the baptism, which I, when I first read that there was going to be a baptism, I assumed that somehow, you know, because it, the uh, champagne was mentioned, and baptism and champagne don't go together as far as I know, so I assumed that it was going to be a christening in which somehow a bottle was broken, but oh. nope, nothing like that. Nope. Anyway, we went to the pub down the uh, cobbled street, uh, the ceilings in Prague are very often not like the ceilings um, here in the U.S. They are not flat. They are domed with interesting edges. We sat down at a big wood table, it's, uh, noisy and boisterous and all of this. And Adam, um, being the uh, unusual creature that he is, had brought his guitar with him thinking that he would play uh, some Czech songs. But you were going to 
he specifically wanted us to do campfire together and, and it, it had started to rain during the baptism so we couldn't um so we couldn't go outside and have have campfire but he still had his guitar still with him. had his guitar with him and i should say um there is something very interesting to be said about the fact that the czech language is only spoken by the people of this one country and so it's about 10 million strong yeah so it's not a huge language group and it's not an easy language either it does mean that all of the young people seem to speak English, which was made life easy for us um, because Czech isn't useful. So they're all bilingual, which makes for an interesting culture. Um, but anyway, uh, he had brought his guitar and he'd been talking to us about uh, some prominent Czech singers, actually singers who are widely known but have become controversial as a result of having been steadfast about certain principles, having acknowledged nuance where... I don't know. Interesting stuff. So anyway, during during pre nineteen eighty nine, during the time that Prague, that the Czech Republic was still Czechoslovakia and behind the Iron Curtain, right. And so I think the story, if I remember correctly, about one of these people was that um, his name had showed up on a list of collaborators with the Soviets, which did not necessarily mean that he had actually done anything, because what it apparently took to end up on one of these lists um, was effectively nothing. But nonetheless, after uh, the the Iron Curtain fell and then the Czech Republic became independent of uh, the Slovaks, um, this was viewed dimly. So even though the songs are universally known by people who still sing them, there's some deeper story. Yep. But anyway, um, we're sitting around this big table with these people, some of whom we uh, have known uh, reasonably well over the course of a week, had a lot of conversations. Some of them are new to us. And Adam breaks out his guitar and he starts playing these Czech songs, which are fascinating, but of course we have no idea what's being said. But it was interesting that people at the next table over uh, started joining in and they were singing along with Adam's playing and Adam's playing became very uh, vigorous because of course now there was this great sense of community in the pub. And then a part of the story, which I still cannot quite reconcile, suddenly four other instruments came out of nowhere. Somebody was playing a, um, a um, accordion. There was an accordion. There was a violin, I think, and I'm missing an instrument somewhere. That's all I remember. I remember the violin first, and then the accordion, and there were three instruments and all the voices except for ours. All the, the voices. Everybody who spoke Czech in the room was singing these songs. And um, so I should say I've forgotten one piece of the puzzle, which is that and we will get back to what the meaning of all of this is. But the Czech people, because of their long history and maybe especially because of their um, resentment of the Soviets uh, during the period of, of uh, the Soviet hegemony over, over Czechoslovakia, um, are um, nobly subversive by nature. Right, these people—they're not; these are not anarchists. These are people who um, defied Soviet rule in many little ways, um, right under the nose of the people who uh, were were oppressing them, and this is just sort of built into their character. And actually, um, the analogy of the Shire was um, actually invoked by several people mm -hmm. um, that there is kind of a you know these sort of independent idiosyncratic folks um, uh, some of whom are up for uh, heroic adventure um, but anyway so the uh, the pub is um, uproariously singing these famous Czech songs and um, 
the barkeep had apparently had a complaint or was in fear of a complaint, and he walked over um, slightly sheepishly to Adam, who was playing his guitar, and told him to keep it down. And at the point that he finished his sentence, uh, Adam reached the chorus and burst it directly into his face. And then instead of being angry at this or something, he kind of rolled his eyes like, yeah, if I wasn't working, I'd be on your side singing as loudly as you are. And so anyway, it was a a beautiful little uh, vignette of the subversion of the this you know very small culture mm-hmm. um, in which you know people had their instruments and, and we, we were told this was not a common phenomenon it wasn't like this was every time you go to the yeah, pub but some of them were joking with us yeah we staged this for you because you wanted music and you wanted campfire and yeah uh, and it you know it obviously was not staged but um truly you know and this is a, a pub with lots of rooms sort of a warren like situation and uh there were three big tables in the room that we were in, and the fact that every single one of these tables had an instrument at them with people, you know, with the violin to be pulled out first. Like, where did that come from? And then for an accordion. Right. The accordion came out. I was like, where did she even pull that out from? Like, where, how do you, how do you, how do you cryptically carry around an accordion? Yeah, how do you suddenly <laughs> produce an accordion? And, and, but I mean, also we had heard, and certainly, we had heard before, and what we heard in the pub that night with the music was consistent with the claim that. All Czech people, and you know, presumably it's not absolutely all, but certainly everyone there that night um, knows something like 30, or some people said, oh, it's more than that, uh, Czech folk songs that they can sing that, and are, are interested in doing so when conditions permit. And so that's, there's something about having a shared culture, and specifically shared music, that you know, when you sing together, you come together. And you know, it's very, very rare for Americans sitting around to actually all know the lyrics to a single song of, no, of any of any note, you know, aside from the totally banal. In fact, right. you and I discovered how rare this is mm-hmm. um, in taking students on field trips and attempting to find a song that everybody knew in common that they were willing to sing around a campfire. And my recollection is unless you specifically assigned people to find such songs, which was not easy for them, you know, to provide lyrics for the people who didn't know it, that sort of thing. Unless you specifically did that, there was really only one popular song that students of, you know, these were millennials that we were teaching, um, that they all knew and could wrestle forth some shared version of, which was Wagon Wheel, Mm -hmm. which is funny because that's not, it just has somehow became the song that Evergreen students on field trips knew. Right. It, yeah. it, it was. But the degree to which people don't have anything else to resort to, because what, however much in love with music they are, it's some very independent version of music. Right. We have, we have such diversity, which in some ways has made things more interesting musically, but it means that it's much harder to come together around music. And Zach has something to say, but first I want to say, you alluded to it, but on my first uh, study abroad to Ecuador, um, I assigned, you know, all, all the students, you know, th- there was lots of work that we were doing together, but one of the pieces of work that doesn't sound academic at all is that I assigned all of the students in advance in small groups, certain types of work that would enhance the trip in ways that had nothing to do with the formal academic goals of the work. And to, I don't remember if it was three or four students, I said, you know, you, I want you to basically, you know, solicit from the class what what songs or what kinds of songs they would be interested in singing together because I knew that a couple of my students were bringing instruments. I encouraged them to do so on the trip. 
and then you will produce lyric sheets and you will bring co- you will you will have copies for everyone and everyone is going to have copies of these lyric sheets and no one's ever going to be required to sit around singing that's this isn't a music class um, but there will be many opportunities when we could be doing so and this will mean that no one has the excuse of oh i don't know the lyrics to that song some people may not know the particular song but once you hear it a few times you 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 should be able to remember the tune. And if you have the lyrics in front of you, you can do it. And it was wonderful. It was definitely the most musical of uh, any of my study abroad. Um, yeah, any of my study abroad or even other field trips. So I want to say one thing before we uh, bring in Zach's point here, which is um, I have suggested, not just with respect to music, but also with respect to literature, that there is a question about is it more important that what you're engaging with is of the highest quality or that it is shared? And I am no longer yeah. convinced yep. that um, the sharedness of it is in any way secondary. Mm. That if you were all reading the same uh, books in common or sub, some, some subset of the books you were reading in common, that it creates a very different kind of um, ability to comprehend each other, which is may, maybe fundamental to moving ahead through time as an actual people, you whatever that... You discovered the great books curriculum. Well, the question is, are the great books the great books, or are the great books frozen in time, and there are other things that should be read, but... The canon may have to evolve, but is there value in having a canon? Yes. Right, and I actually, uh, I would have suspected this about music, but having watched a pub full of Czechs who didn't know each other uh, erupt into song together and watched the camaraderie, and I think we even felt the camaraderie, not oh. having any idea what the content of these songs Very actually was. So. Yeah. so seeing that, I mean, you know, it's one of the things that we quietly, I don't even want to say we did away with it. We allowed it to be destroyed mm-hmm. because we didn't understand. It was a Chesterton's fence issue, right? And I would say couples dancing and it wasn't it was like a chesterton's line in the sand that you didn't notice it wasn't even like oh we'll have to get dismantle this it just we just let it go we just let it go without imagining uh the depth of the value and anyway um it's a mistake we should not repeat if we manage to get ourselves through this this rather dire time indeed um i think this is less true in my generation actually uh that there are a lot of songs that i can end up around a campfire with people i don't know uh particularly well and everyone knows really? it's not even just like two or three it's a lot a lot of songs so uh, and songs that not um not music that you would find banal or uninteresting music that you guys listen to or have listened to and interesting you care to provide any examples or is that um, not relevant not going to be that great at it, but wagon okay. wheel was the first one i was going to come up with mm-hmm. um chasing cars riptide dad you may know some of these mm-hmm. anything by the lumineers pretty much okay um there are a lot of them though uh and obviously it's not like every single person will know every song, but there are some, so there are a number of them that actually pretty much everyone will know. Interesting. Well, I have a little anecdote for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I was teaching uh, a class with Rachel Hastings and um, I, I, for whatever reason, I wanted students to think about what song might represent their generation in mm-hmm. some way. And I actually... Let's just be clear. This is a person, one of these crazy people with a double PhD. Uh, so PhD is in mathematics and linguistics, which was the point of connection for you teaching with, with, yeah, she, with her, right? Yeah. So you were probably doing like evolution of like communication and language and such. Yeah, it was, right? it was, it was evolution of language in one way or another. Yeah. Um, 
So cool. it's cool teaching with linguists. Yeah, yeah it is. I, I did um, as well. It is cool teaching with linguists, and in her case, I forgive her for having somehow pursued two PhDs, which ordinarily <laughs> I would consider an indication of a mental disorder. But um, in her case, I think she was just being thorough. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, so I proposed a song. I've forgotten which one it is exactly, but it happened to be a Lumineers song. So the, again, these are millennials, not Gen Zs. I proposed mm -hmm. a Lumineers song that I thought more or less got at the ethos that I detected from millennials. They absolutely hated this suggestion. They detested it. And the song that they so did... So they knew it and hated the song. Absolutely. They couldn't stand the idea that it might represent them. And maybe it doesn't. But what they came up with instead was um, Gangnam Style which I did not have a deep relationship with. I had, in fact, heard it, but didn't really even understand what it was. And they explained to me what it was. What and, did they say? Well, they said that it was actually a send-up of this very tawny Korean neighborhood. Tawny? Tony. Tony. Fancy. Yeah. Okay. Super fancy. <laughs> I'm like caramel colored? But... I don't. Okay. English is not my first language. <laughs> Just remember that. But um, mm -hmm. but anyway, this very Tony uh, mm -hmm. Korean neighborhood, you know, I'm imagining something Beverly Hillsy. Mm -hmm. um, and so the point is the song mocks the style of this neighborhood while seeming to present an argument for embracing it or something like that. So it's sort of an, a dripping with irony, okay. over the top, uh, very. I don't know if you've seen the I, video I for not, it. No. Never. Oh, it's pretty wild. But um, but anyway, so they thought that it was sort of they were very tuned. So the Lumineers are pretty earnest, and I think the problem was that I had suggested something earnest, and they were much more in touch with their cynicism and Gangnam Style that, represented that, their that, cynicism. That may be the description of the generation right there: rejection of earnestness, embrace of cynicism. Yeah. Of, of the millennials, and, you know, and, and not to say like, again, we happen to teach exactly, we had lots of students who weren't traditional age, but if all of our students had been traditional college age, we taught the millennials. Yep. And almost to a person, our students were amazing. Um, but I do feel like the generation understood itself to be, um, you know, beyond post-earnest, post-earnest <laughs> post and pro-cynicism. Yeah, pro-cynicism, which uh, raises my little principle that uh, no matter how cynical you are, you're still being naive. The whole <laughs> damn generation was still being naive, no matter how in love with their cynicism they were. Yeah, indeed. So I guess the the one other thing that I would um, put just put out there, as I already have in writing on Natural Selections, but about that evening at the pub, uh, was that a couple of the people who who we had just met that night, who had been there for the for the book launch, the book baptism. Uh, were two men who were basically polar opposites politically. Uh, and, you know, we heard them discuss Trump and what was going on in the schools and guns. And they had, you know, they just, they could have easily been Americans on opposite side of the political spectrum. And they were sitting next to each other. They were drinking together. They were laughing together. They ended up singing together. And, you know, they're not going to be best buddies, but they disagreed and the world did not end and the, neither of them thought that the other one was an evil human being or a naive idiot, um, you know, depending on which, which way it might have gone. And it felt like something that would be very, very hard to find in the U.S. Yeah, it was remarkable. I had forgotten that, that piece of it, but you're absolutely right that watching people who vehemently disagreed over consequential things, yep. but it did not, it was not personal. 
um, right. was uh, a reminder of how things are in better times. So, I mean, I guess as long as we're this deep in the uh, discussion here, we should talk about the model we were sort of playing with about why this yeah. culture is where it is. And I, I let me just say a couple more things about that. Um, you and I were not necessarily expecting to find what we found in Prague. In fact, we were concerned based on where things are historically about going to Europe at this moment. And well, because Prague was our first stop, but London was our next stop. And yep. we were concerned about being in London in particular. Yep. And we will talk yeah. about the comparison. But what was striking about Prague um, was that it appeared to be a version of the West that functions far better than any other version that we have recently seen. All of the versions, you know, whether it's Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Germany, all of these places are now severely messed up surrounding the very values that once galvanized them as, you know, the West. Yep. So when we found that Prague was quite the opposite, that there seemed to be a deep commitment to um, what, what we have called uh, cosmopolitanism, um, as, as a stark contrast to multiculturalism, multiculturalism being you keep your own culture and you live side by side with people keeping their own culture, whereas cosmopolitanism, uh, yes, you can keep your traditions, but the point is you're part of an agreement to move forward while de-emphasizing lineages and all of that. This appeared to be alive and well in Prague. Mm -hmm. And what we started to consider was the possibility that the Iron Curtain had actually, so uh, the Czech people have an uncomfortable relationship with whether they are west or east because being behind the iron curtain people assume that they are of eastern europe and they don't see themselves this way and that's true because what you know the soviets were protecting themselves by collecting satellite states as a buffer to prevent attack and so effectively uh czechoslovakia got trapped behind the Iron Curtain with a good deal of Westernness to it. Mm -hmm. And the hypothesis that you and I were playing with um, was that the Iron Curtain actually protected it from what has destroyed it in the most of the, what the Czechs called the West, West, West. <laughs> <laughs> well, one, one, one guy during the Q&A of the book baptism, and I think that was <laughs> charming. It was. Like the West, the yeah. West, West, and then the West, 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 which is like out here on the frontier in the West Coast of the U.S. where we went crazy first or something. Craziest yeah. of all. Yeah. Um, but anyway, the idea is that the Iron Curtain, and I would argue that the thing that destroyed the Western values in the West, West, West <laughs> was the relationship with the market. Mm -hmm. which does not mean that I am anti-market. Long-time viewers and listeners will know that I'm extremely pro-market, but I do not. I draw a distinction between allowing markets to tell you how to do something. No tool is better than a market for getting you to producing something that does a job well, but markets should never be allowed to tell you what to do because they will find every defect of human character and exploit it, and you will end up with uh, a dystopian nightmare if you let mar markets drive. Um, but anyway... That force, which seems to have destroyed our values in the West, 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 um, was basically held at bay by, you know, communist authoritarianism, which is not a good thing, but nonetheless, it protected it in some ways the way um, the way the embargo and the relationship between Cuba and the Soviet Union protected Cuban music from what the music industry did to music across the rest of Latin America and the world, really. Yeah. 
uh, I, th I think that analogy is fascinating. Um, the one to, to Cuba and its musical tradition and perhaps cuisine as well. Um, with regard to the Czech Republic, of course, uh, that raises the question of, well, what about all of the other countries that the Soviet Union was using as buffer uh, that were behind the Iron Curtain? Um, and the Czech Republic has, you know, we are, we are not historians, but, you know, a, num a number of things that are unique. And we say this as people who have not been. I, I, I had been in Prague once before in 97, and then um, a, a friend who I was attending a conference with in Prague and I, I went around um, Hungary together. Uh, so I have been in Hungary, the countryside of Hungary and Budapest and Prague once before, but 25 years ago. Uh, and you had not been in Central Eastern Europe at all before. Um, so the Czech Republic, you know, wh why, why does the Czech Republic seem to be doing something rather different from what Hungary is doing, for instance, or Slovakia, or, you know, or it, you know, any of the other countries that were not um, fully Soviet, but effectively being used as, as buffers um, by the Soviet Union. Well, in part, the Czech Republic is right at that edge. And so it had borders uh, that were not, that it, it, it contained the border that was the Iron Curtain, effectively. And um, so it had greater proximity. There must have been some sort of cultural osmosis across, osmosis across that border. But also the history of the Czech people in particular, which you mentioned the language, being so distinct, so difficult, and so intact, um, has meant that throughout a very long history of effectively occupation, like, you know, Hungary was in charge of things for a long time. The Czech, you know, the Czech people were under the boot of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and they were under the boot of the Russians, and then the Germans, and then the Soviets. And, you know, before the Austro-Hungarian Empire, presumably there's, you know, it goes back farther in time. Um, but, you know, over and over and over again, the sort of the noble subversion and the being able to communicate just among themselves and retaining retaining things like folk songs and, you know, cuisine that was like, I didn't, I didn't go in there expecting anything, but like the cuisine was really good and unique, distinct. There's just a lot of very distinct parts of Czech culture um, that would, that would suggest that it would be distinct from also other countries uh, that were behind the Iron Curtain, because that wouldn't be a sufficient explanation. Right. Uh, yeah. I don't think it is sufficient. I think it, it is that something of the West got trapped behind the Iron Curtain, yeah. and that I, I think that there is a contrast that we are going to find between Hungary and the Czech Republic. And interestingly, you and I raised this point with all of the people that we were meeting after we had started to detect this, because yeah. it was a real question, what has happened here? Why, mm -hmm. you know, for example, we had walked some very long distance one day, and we came back through uh, a neighborhood and uh, families back and forth, strollers, you know, fathers holding their children's hand, walking down the street. It was just so normal. So many children. Right. It's, it's rare that you see almost any children in American cities now. Yeah. And, and there was just n no evidence of the nonsense, the having forgotten what men and women are and any of this. It just looked like it looked like a time capsule. Mm -hmm. um, so... Um, I think the thing is, there are a couple different ways to resist whatever the market or whatever force it was, if it wasn't the market, did to the values of the West. One of them has to do with, unfortunately, embracing a kind of primitive lineage against lineage notion, which I think is, you know, we haven't been to Hungary, you've been there once, but we haven't been there lately. Yeah. But this is sort of what we hear, that, you know, that that is sort of the, it's, you know, a kind of uh, reversion to a pre-cosmopolitan 
uh, approach. You know, if that's unfair, I'm interested. But my guess would be that there are two ways to resist this. One of these is the sort of backward-looking Hungarian way, and the other way is to actually, uh, the Czech way, the cosmopolitan way, to protect that instinct towards this Western value and figure out what it is that threatens it and somehow corral that force so that cosmopolitanism can go on because, frankly, that's the only way we as a planet are going to make it too well-armed to go back to isolating ourselves by lineage and fighting, right? As dumb as it would be to do that because it makes a much less pleasant world, it's also suicidal. Yeah. Uh, I guess one other thing worth noting, because we didn't know what to expect with regard to um, how uh, Prague uh, was looking in the wake of October 7. And we knew we were going to London next, and there was already, um, you know, real explicit uh, protest and, and worse um, uh, that was pro-Hamas. And we really saw the opposite in Prague. Um, and in fact, we saw one, and I, on an independent walk, saw another of these, you know, long wall of these flyers that had been being put up from people who, uh, of people who were kidnapped on October 7th from Israel by Hamas, which, you know, we've been, if you've been online at all, uh, you have heard that in many places and, you know, in London, in many American cities, there are people going around tearing down these flyers. Um, and, you know, really, no matter what you think, no, no matter what you think, people being kidnapped from from their lives and being held hostage uh, is is an act of barbarism. And in Prague, uh, these flyers were uh, immaculate. There were long lines of them. They weren't being guarded by police. They were on public streets where they easily could have been defaced or vandalized. And instead, what I saw on the uh, when, when I ran into one set of these when I wasn't with you, uh, was that people who were walking, you know, on their way somewhere, Czech people, were actually pausing in front of some of them to, to look at some of them, that this was, this had become part of sort of the background understanding of this is part of what's going on in the world, and we're going to reflect and respect uh, this truth by observing it and then continuing on. Um, I don't, Perhaps that is happening elsewhere. I hope it is happening elsewhere. But to have seen that response to these flyers in person was um, extraordinary. Yeah, uh, we'll maybe get to this a little later in the discussion. But the outpouring of anti-Semitism that has been seen around the globe means that whatever uh, latent anti-Semitism was there is suddenly activated and on the surface. And so I was expecting absolutely expecting that we would see some of it and maybe it would be less or more who knew um but i was not expecting to detect its opposite and by its opposite i mean and i'm not arguing that there was never anti-semitism in the czech republic there clearly was but what remains there seems to be um a genuine sense of affinity and in fact a palpable sense of regret over the Jews who were liquidated by the Nazis from uh, from what would have been Czechoslovakia. Yeah. Um, and I did not expect that at all. I did not expect it. But um, that is the feeling. And also just interacting with people. There was no, there was nothing to feel, right? People, it, it really was this cosmopolitan feeling. Um, so 
Anyway, that's heartening that somewhere is not beset by this. And I will also say that um, the feeling this is has only one part of this has anything to do with anti-Semitism, but the feeling of safety walking around Prague was also unusual. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a stark contrast to any American city at the moment, which is shocking. And not just safety, but um, at one point we were we were on a long walk back from um, actually the the day that we were invited to um, do the the cold plunge mm-hmm. with a couple of our new friends in the river. And then we went and had lunch, and then we walked back uh, some some number of miles back to the Airbnb where we were staying, and walked back through a number of neighborhoods we hadn't been in before. And we're at some very busy sort of pedestrian mall. I don't like that word, but sort of a, you know, a, a large area with no with no traffic, uh, except for the trams that were going through the streetcars that were going through one one place. And we just stood there for a while watching people. And after 10, 15 minutes, you said, there's no drama. No drama at all. And this was uh, a pretty diverse uh, setting. Like there were some tourists am- among the Czechs who were not, you know, somewhat homogeneous with regard to their ethnicity. But um, this was, you know, young, old, black, white, you know, you know presumably very well off and not so well off. Uh, and families, single people, old people, couples, and no drama, zero drama. People would occasionally bump into each other, so like just just nothing. Everyone was just doing their thing, living their lives, being being nice, being friendly. Some of them were clearly not in fantastic moods, and some of them were in amazing moods, and neither of them tried to infect the others uh, with whatever it was that they had. Yeah, I in watching, it occurred to me that they just weren't focused on each other. Right. Yeah. They were not obsessed with what other people were going to think of them or they whether they being were performative. Yeah, they weren't broadcasting yeah. their politics, right? They were just right. being. And right. it was such it was such it was so a, a relief. They weren't, they weren't just not focused on each other, they weren't focused on their own identity. Right. So it what they as you said, they weren't broadcasting, this is who I am, you have to know who I am at all times. And like, no, they just are. Right. They just are. And yeah. it was you know, you and I have talked many times about the strange culture shock that you get not necessarily when you go someplace really different but when you come home and mm-hmm. you can see your own culture briefly for what it is yep. um this was a reminder of a state of being that i i just haven't seen in so long yeah people just just being and not mm-hmm. you know I, I don't even know how else to describe it but it you don't know that that's not what's going on in an American park until you've gone somewhere and watched it happen. And it's like, oh, that's 25 years ago, right? The last time I saw that is 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, So what the hell happened? And, you know, obviously- Why did we let it go? Yeah. Why did we let it go? Mm -hmm. Uh, There's also, I mean, one additional piece is that uh, there appears to be no opioid crisis. Yeah. Uh, And really almost in all of Europe, we are told, um, but definitely not- uh, in Prague, uh, yeah, and tiny so, amount of homelessness, no obvious. Yeah, but you know, whereas in Portland, you know, I actually asked someone, "It's like, where are the people lying in the street with their pants around their ankles?" Yeah, half joking, but seriously, in West Coast cities, that's what you see. And uh, people in Prague thought I was joking. Yes, you also, and who knows what has to do with what, but you also in um, watching people either in the park or in this. Uh, 
Yeah, mall is a terrible pedestrian. But yeah, yeah some yeah. shopping district with yeah. no cars in it. Yeah. Um, with a guy who was making fire out of his mouth. Yes, from Poland. Yeah. Um, the fire wasn't from Poland. He didn't say. No. But um, the uh, much reduced obsession with phones. Yeah. Right? People mm-hmm. are obviously using their phones. Mm-hmm. They have the same phones the rest of us do. They're connected to the same internet. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the people walking around were actually living their lives rather than physically present but mentally elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was interesting as Very well. Nice, and, yeah. you know, what does that have to do with them having become not performative and not being obsessed with what other people think of them at every moment? Yep. Probably a lot. Yes. Yes, indeed. Um, all right. You have more to say about... Uh... No, I think we've done a pretty good, I mean, we'll probably return to it, but Mm -hmm. uh, something interesting is going on there, and uh, a, it was a delightful departure from what has become the new normal, a delightful and unexpected departure from the new normal um, at many different levels. It was, you know, I didn't know that Czech food was a thing, Um, (laughs) but Czech food, while not being, you know... A stunning cuisine was delicious. Mm-hmm. Every meal, they were not things that you would necessarily encounter elsewhere. Mm-hmm. It was the whole thing was pretty eye opening. And we had Mexican food. <laughs> Did have Mexican food. <laughs> <laughs> one night it was late, and we in the one Czech restaurant we went to it was going to be a long wait, and so we're like, somehow we ended up in a Mexican restaurant. And having grown up in L.A. That was probably a stupid move. Oh, like, a... you just don't go eat Mexican food if you both grew up in L.A. and have also spent a lot of time in Mexico and actually like real, like, Mexican street food. But we did it, and it was not a mistake. It was, in retrospect, <laughs> not a... It was definitely a mistake on the front end because oh, yeah. w- why are you doing that? Yeah. But it was uh, pretty darn good. I mean, I've never been served tacos with gravy before. They're all right. That's <laughs> not... not but it was Mexican. actually really, really good. It's pretty good. And when we mentioned this to... Uh, the, I mean, Eva, like, I don't remember, one of our one of our new friends the next day, and, you know, we had said, you know, is it, is it Czech-Mex? Like, what is it? No, it's Czechican. Like, it's Czechican, Czechican. yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. All right. Then we went to London. Yeah, then we went to London. Things are different. Um, things are different. Things are different. I would say London felt um, still much more functional than uh, the major West Coast cities. Yeah. Um, we did run into uh, some... Protesters, there were a couple of massive protests while we were there. Mm-hmm. Um, and we ran into people, you know, proudly displaying Palestinian flags, wearing them, in fact, uh, on the tube. Yeah, one and, guy draped draped in a Palestinian flag being filmed by his associate. Yeah, which, you know, under ordinary circumstances, um, I wouldn't think twice about it or maybe i would think twice about it it's but weird to be draped in a flag yeah it's weird to be draped in a flag but i yeah. guess the point is you know it's the west right you do you you do you mm-hmm. um on the other hand uh the fact that these protests appear to be supportive of the worst barbarism in uh recent memory mm-hmm. uh is obviously very striking yeah we worried before we went uh about whether we would feel safe and i don't think if we had run into one of these massive protests you know at big ben or or the like it would have been different so i was on the tube on saturday um 
went to get an eye appointment because it's easier and cheaper to do that in London than it is in the United States. That tells you something about our healthcare system because theirs is not in great shape either. But um, I, I was on the tube alone and then you were going to be meeting me out, out there and um, very crowded. And I didn't know then that I think it was crowded precisely because, um, you know, after the line that I was on several stops after I was getting off was going to Westminster and this was going to be the massive protest. And there were several people who got on with um, big unfurled banners in Arabic wearing keffiyehs and such. And um, it was, you know, that's had had I, you know, gone gone to Westminster instead of getting off at my stop. Um I think it might we I might have felt a little different, although not being Jewish. Um and um yeah, you know, I I think I would have been utterly fine, but people who were in the middle of it had a different experience. To be sure, um I I do think this all brings into stark relief this distinction between multiculturalism and the cosmopolitan West. And that, you know, what you're looking at in Europe is a disagreement over what it means to live together. And the, I don't know how it is that one advances the right idea. My feeling is I'm cool with anybody who is up for figuring out how we get along and put aside the racial stuff doesn't mean forget where you came from. It doesn't mean give up your traditions. But the point is either we're going to get along and we're going to be productive because we're not focused on that as a delineator of who is tolerable or worth collaborating with or not, or we aren't. And the problem is that multiculturalism sounds like a synonym for cosmopolitanism, but it is in fact the opposite. And I think this is something we have to increasingly be concerned about, that one of the ways that the label doesn't match what's in the box is that something is disguised as its opposite, and that causes people to either just not pay attention because it's too complex to figure out what the hell's going on. You know, the Patriot Act was very unpatriotic, right? right? Um, multiculturalism sounds like, yeah, Big multiculturalism, you know. I love Indian food, and uh, I sure have enjoyed traveling in Latin America. I'm multicultural as the next guy. Nope. Multiculturalism is about insulation, and that is why it is so dangerous. Because the point is, if you, you know, if we're supposed to live together, but you're going to retain your obligation to some other thing, then the point is, well, we're not even really a nation, are we? And I'm not arguing that this is in any way a simple question. It's really not. Because for one thing, um, let's take, for example, uh, Asian minorities in countries of the traditional West. Um, these folks often live in enclaves that take on the cultural attributes of their homeland. Is that something to be worried about? I don't think so. Yeah. Because You're talking I, about like Chinatowns. Right, Chinatown like or Japantown, yeah. whatever it is. Because I think what's going on, if I understand these places correctly, and I've certainly been to dozens of them, the immigrants retain their culture in these enclaves, but they don't expect their children to live within Japantown and to, you know, to not be of their host nation. The point is it's a it's a transition period. In the same way that um, 
when two people who do not speak the same language find themselves working the same field, having to coordinate with each other. They develop what's called a pigeon, a, a yeah. linguistic pigeon, which is not a complete language, but it allows them to exchange enough information to, to function. And the point is a pigeon is not, aha, we've arrived at you know the intersection between, um, between Swedish and French. The point is it's a, it's a stopgap measure. And immigrants, you don't expect immigrants to suddenly be of their new culture, especially if the gap between cultures is big. Um, but the question is, is the commitment? Actually, I do. I'm moving there because I want to be of that place. That's why I'm going through the effort of moving, is that I actually think that that place is the place for me and my family going forward. That's the cosmopolitan view, even if it takes a temporary stop as, well, the people who come from that culture are going to live in the same place because they speak each other's language and they know how to get things done. Um, but that's the real question is, you know, are you going to keep your children separate from your new culture, right? And I don't mean just teach them the traditions and feed them the food of the homeland. I mean, is is your priority to keep them from becoming part of your new culture? That's the issue. Well, I guess there's presumably a distinction for people who uh, are seeking to go to, say, the United States uh, because they understand the United States to be a place where they want to be, as opposed to needing to, whether or not the need is uh, merely felt or absolutely um, absolutely true, um, escape from the place that they are from and finding the United States or wherever it is a place that they can go. And so I would, you know, I would certainly expect the people in the first group uh, would be more encouraging of their children uh, to both um, hold on to the cultures of, of their homeland and also um, become you know, become American. Uh, whereas uh, the people in the second group, while perhaps having some gratitude for having found safe harbor, uh, may not be uh, nearly as excited about actually um, having any members of their family become American because, you know, they don't feel like it was a choice. Like, they, you know, they were forced out of the place that they wanted to be and it still feels like home to them. Um, yeah, I agree. And again, uh, I don't want to pretend that there is any obviousness to how one addresses these distinctions right. but right. there is a distinction between effective refugees right, right um, who aren't moving by choice they're getting out of the way of something which is of course perfectly understandable um, and i would point out that one of the things that we learned about the czech republic is that it had uh, it, it had absorbed a large number of ukrainian refugees huge number in a, po a population of ten thousand czech 10 million Czech people, uh, they apparently accepted 500,000 Ukrainian refugees. Right. Interestingly, there was no, there was a little detectable tension over this. There like, had been concern yeah. that there might be tension, but the fact is this functioning culture had absorbed a huge fraction of refugees um, and had done so in a way that had not been massively disruptive or had had not caused uh, a cultural crisis. Now, the Ukrainians and the Czech people are not so distinct from yep. one another, um, uh, you know, not nearly as distinct as some of the cultures that are coming into clash with one another as refugees come True. into countries. But I do think, unfortunately, we have become unwilling to discuss the difficult issues surrounding things like patriotism. Mm -hmm. 
Does it make, you know, and I will just remind people, this is one of these terms I've redefined for myself because it needed redefining in order to do precise enough work. So what I mean by patriotism does not inherently apply to a nation. You, it, patriotism is a willingness to sacrifice on behalf of something bigger and more important than you are. A nation is one such thing, but it's not the only such thing. But in any case, the idea that a nation has a right to to wonder whether or not you are actually hostile mm -hmm. when you move into this new homeland or aspire to be part of it, that is an obvious question. Yes. And to the extent that, you know, the open borders folks, for example, right? Open borders sound so lovely. You know, oh, there's an open border between Washington and Oregon. That's just, that's how it should be globe-wide. Well, maybe one day, but not while people are hostile to each other in a way that the border is the place where you take those folks who bear ill will towards you or to some fraction of you and exclude them because it's the good thing for the nation to exclude them at the border, right? Once you're inside, then obviously the questions of equal rights are fundamental. But um, at the border, that's the place where a nation, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful if cells didn't have to have membranes? Right? Well, this is what I was just thinking. You know, like, uh, uh, to what degree can can we go reductio ad absurdum on this, and say, you know, all all borders, all fences, all categorizations are wrong? And I do I do feel like in some academic classrooms that is where this goes. Like, I, I, you know, I think oh. there was an argument, and at some level, you could say that this is. You know, the sex is a construct, and male and female are you know all in your mind is perhaps a a logical, if insane, uh, downstream consequence of this kind of thinking. Yeah, it's one of a million failure modes downstream of Marxism. Yeah. Right? The basic point is, well, okay, uh, the, the uh, cartographic version of from each according to his ability to each according to his need is borderlessness. Yes. The point is you go where you want. You yep. take from them because if they've got more and you've got less, then obviously it's their obligation to just hand it over. Yeah. Um, the point is, no, no one has ever come up with a coherent mechanism for actually doing this in a way that it leaves a society uh, tolerable. The only way to make it work, since it punishes those who contribute more and rewards those who contribute less, is uh, with uh, the iron fist of authoritarianism to mm. keep people from rebel rebelling against it. Um, so... Obviously, you've got to have a border. You're responsible for setting the rules inside of your border. Hopefully, you do so in a way that it enhances the lives of the people inside of that border so they become safer and more secure and liberated and all of those things. But if you, if you don't have a, uh, a place where you stop the influx of people who are not on board with your rules, then it's you know not shocking when your rules come apart because of incoherence. Right. So... <clears throat> Anyway, I don't know. I don't know exactly where that um, leaves us, but I do think recognizing th there's been a trap set for us, and it's always the case, isn't it? When you hear about multiculturalism, and you think it's like peer review, right? oh, of course I'm. Well, who doesn't want their work reviewed by peers? Right? Of course, I'm in favor of peer review. You know, uh, you know, is my medicine evidence based? Oh, you betcha. Right. These Is this are all science data driven. Right. Data driven. Gosh, I mean, that sounds so very empirical. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to follow that data. Oh, follow it to the end <laughs> of the earth. Yeah. It just sounds like these are things 
The mind so quickly assumes it knows what these words mean when placed together in this way that it does not ask any questions because to ask any questions would be to evidence that maybe you're not fully on board with empirical science, are you, <laughs> right? right? Maybe, you, maybe you don't want your work scrutinized because it can't take it, that kind of thing. And so anyway, multiculturalism is one of these things. Yep. Almost everybody uh, of the West has sort of just accepted it because they know that they like some cuisine that isn't from their homeland. And so they, they aspire to multiculturalism, not realizing it's a Trojan horse, right? What they're really aspiring to is Western cosmopolitanism, which, you know, people can't see that these are opposites and we have to if we're to go forward. So anyway, I think I've more or less said it, but, um, but wow, what a tragedy that uh, we are this confused about these issues. Indeed. So we were in London uh, largely to attend the ARC conference, uh, the Alliance for Responsible Citizenship, about which uh, much has been said. And I don't know that we're going to say that much here, but uh, do you want to? Yeah, I mean, let's say uh, I think like the rest of the world, we became aware that there was going to be an ARC conference before it was named that mm -hmm. uh, when Jordan Peterson mentioned his his intent to build such a thing. Uh, on Joe Rogan's podcast, and it sounded like a tremendous uh, opportunity. And indeed, what they put on um, was, in many regards, quite stunning. It was uh, mm -hmm. as high a production value conference as I've ever been to, and it wasn't small. You would imagine the highest production value conference would have been a tiny one. Yeah. And no, this one was um, huge. Yeah, something like 1,300, 1,400 people. Yeah, it was really... Uh, quite something, followed by a uh, an event at the O2 Arena, which is a big sports arena, um, with Jordan Peterson and Douglas Murray and uh, Bjorn Lomborg and Jonathan Pajot, Jonathan Pajot and Ben Shapiro, and a guest appearance by Ben Shapiro. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, this was uh, quite the cultural moment, um, and you know it definitely had a bent to it. Uh, they were presenting a particular perspective, and it's one about which uh, there's a lot to be said, both positive and negative. Um, but anyway, interesting that this is being attempted. Yeah, and I, I will say um, two two positive things about uh, about what we both saw. I won't speak for you, but I think you and I both were impressed uh, with a focus on art. Um, that the spoken word poet, whose name do you remember? I'm in um, contact with him, but I've forgotten it. Yeah, um, who did a couple of um, sp spoken word poems was outstanding, truly outstanding. Uh, and I've also forgotten the name of the uh, artist uh, whose paintings were a little hard to decipher. They were large paintings on either side of the stage, hard to decipher when you were far away from them. But his presentation on um, the various ways that art speaks to us uh, and also there was a composer who spoke about the, the role of creativity in uniting uh, past, present, and future understandings. Uh, all, all of those I found very, very compelling. So that thread, that focus on art, I thought was uh, important and necessary. Um, and I also, I mean, I, I'd heard the term before, but I'm, and I'm certain you knew a lot more and still do about this than, than I did, but I had never actually heard anyone present on fourth-gen nuclear before mm -hmm. yeah, and yeah so there was this one 
one little segment um, on um, on energy, um, and uh, there are a couple of short presentations that were um, terrific, including a description of uh, fourth generation nuclear, which made me wonder, um, as I have wondered before, but now much more sharply, to who wins by conflating second gen nuclear with fourth gen nuclear? Like, you know, why is it the nuclear that we, industry exactly? So, you know, why is it that we're st still talking about nuclear as if that's a thing when what that immediately calls to mind for almost everyone is dangerous and outdated and and toxic, and there is a totally different thing uh, that is that is soon to be possible that is under active development. <laughs> And uh, it's somehow under the same umbrella and who wins the current, the second gen nuclear industry. Right. Now, it's not, the funny thing is, you know, it's new and it's cutting edge and it's only 50 years old that it's actually been uh, possible to do, right? Yeah. This isn't, this but isn't. we're not doing it This yet. isn't future. It actually has been done. And yeah. I believe, I don't know, but I believe that basically there were a couple of reactors that used this technology that were then shut down and it, so, you know, the, uh, the uranium folks are in charge still of the yeah. nuclear industry. Um, but we will see. Mm -hmm. Now, there's also a lot to be said about what we don't know. Fourth gen nuclear looks to be a great deal safer and uh, more reasonable from the point of view of burning spent nuclear fuel from uranium-based reactors, for example, um, you know, uh, melting down to a safe state rather than a catastrophic failure. Yep. Um, but the question is, what don't we know, right? right? You know, uranium is the devil we do know. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know of anything that suggests that fourth gen would be uh, similarly destructive and hazardous. Um, I guess these are discussions for another time that we should definitely have. Um, but it was interesting to see that. Also, there was fascinating... Uh, presentation on um, a cactus biomass proposal that, uh, frankly, I mean that sounds almost preposterous no, it's, in terms it's of its utility. Awesome, but... actually, and and the, the 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 awesome guy behind it sent me some pictures of of him at the cactus farm, but it's it looks like it could actually do a tremendous amount of good to basically turn turn. I think it was the cactus pads into both um, feed and biofuel. Um, both like feed for cattle and such and, and biofuel and, yeah you know, basically taking um, non apparently non-useful land non-arable land and and what did you call it sustainable solar sustainable solar yeah i, yeah, I, I yeah. think this is the way to think of it because of course yeah. you know as michael schellenberger who was present uh has pointed out um solar is one of these technologies that if you just pay attention to the fact that something that you stuck out in the sun is spitting out electricity, it looks beautiful. But when you consider what it takes to make one of these photovoltaic cells, what it takes to dispose of it, what its lifetime is, right? This is not as good a technology as you would like. Mm -hmm. I'm still very favorable to solar, of course. Cactus is a great technology. And it's solar. Mm -hmm. The point is it's solar done in a way that you don't have to do anything because it's self-renewing. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway. It's already figured out all the glitches. Yes, it's already figured out all the glitches. And actually, this was one of the excellent points made by Chris Martinson in the podcast that we mm -hmm. released few weeks ago while we were away, mm -hmm. um, where, you know, he points out that effectively nature is the only one doing these things sustainably and that, you know, wind farms and solar, these are rebuildable. 
Right. Um, but they're not sustainable because they don't maintain themselves. Mm-hmm. Only plants do that. So anyway, I'm 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 gonna be thrilled and tickled to discover that cactus was the solution to some big part of our problem. Mm-hmm. Um I'm 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 rooting for that for reasons Absolutely. that are not, you know, just about energy. Yeah. Oh totally. Um I'm gonna I think I think it was opus. I'm gonna look it up and put and put that in the in the show notes as well. Right. So people can find it. Um so we've been going for a while. Should we um should we talk a little bit about what I was doing in Denver or should we save that for next time? Should we do that now? Um that's your call. Yeah. My call. Does Zach have an opinion? No, he does not. Um okay, we'll we'll do it now. Okay. There are a bunch of questions. Um well, I'd like to ask the audience, but you can't respond. They can. They can shake their fist at the yeah. at the screen. Um, how about this? How about I just um, preview it, and then we'll come back to it. Okay. So um, from from London, uh, I flew to Denver uh, and uh, to give a talk at the Genspect conference. Uh, Genspect is an organization set up uh, to to talk reality about sex and gender, and to uh, to promote non medicalized. Uh, responses to people with issues of, of, of gender. And it was, um, boy, hopeful and heartbreaking both as, as, which is the phrase I think I used in my natural selections piece yesterday. Um, one of the sets of things, uh, so there, there are, I don't know, I'm guessing 300 people, 250, 300 people in attendance and a lot of parents, of uh, beloved children who have um, come to believe that they are the sex that they are not, a lot of therapists, a number of uh, medical professionals, uh, not people who are actually um, people who are trying to resist the ideology and 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 not not prescribe hormones and and certainly not uh, promote surgeries uh, for these for these kids and, and young adults. Uh, and the maybe I'll save. Um, I'll save talking about um, sex equity for infant care <laughs> until next time. That's a little teaser. Um, but I will share one of the parents I talked to sent me a document that she has anonymized enough that she uh, said I can I can share it. But I don't want you to show my screen, Zach. I'm going to read some of it, but uh, do not share my screen because I'm not sure to what degree um, it is. Uh, the visuals have been anonymized. So uh, the mom sent me this saying, so she and I had talked before the um, the manifesto of the trans-identified shooter had been released by, uh, what's Stephen it going to be? Crowder. Stephen Crowder. Uh, a day or two ago. Yep. Uh, and, and this mom and I had talked a day or two before that. And she sent this to me and said, in light of that, um, and she's left out all identifying characteristics. So the exact, the exact reason that she felt compelled to send this to me is not utterly clear, but let me just share some of what she, she had to say. Again, this is, this is written by a mother, um, names and some identifying features have been changed. Um, Marla's daughter, Belle, has suffered from depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, attempted suicide, self-harm, substance abuse, and defiant behavior since the age of 11. Therapy and medication has had only limited success. A year and a half ago, shortly after her 16th birthday, she left home and moved to a city five hours away to live with her aunt. At that time, Belle came out as transgender. 
took on a boy's name, cut her hair, started wearing boy's clothing. Her aunt, who was supportive of her transition, bought her chest binders and enrolled her in the local high school as a boy. Against the urging of Belle's therapist, her aunt was in no hurry to continue Belle's therapy. She believed that there was nothing wrong with Belle's mental health and that all Belle needed was a supportive environment, unconditional love, and to be accepted for who she was. This is the affirmative care model, right? Um, which, oh, let me say that um, one of the speakers, um, the remarkable young woman, uh, a detransitioner, uh, spoke, uh, now I'm, I'm not reading from this, spoke at the conference about the distinction between affirmation and validation and uh, was arguing in favor of validation, which sounds like, you know, what's the difference? Uh, but the distinction that she made, so this is, this is a natal female who lived uh, as, a, as, as a man for some years and is now detransitioned um, and is, you know, coming to be comfortable again in her female body. Uh, she said, validation um, is, I validate that you are having the, the feelings that you say you are having. And affirmation is, and your feelings are real and true. And reflection of reality. Reflection of physical yes. reality. Yes. And so, you know, validation of, yes, I, I have no, I, I, if you tell me you are feeling those things, you are feeling those things. Um, but affirmation takes that a step, an illogical step further and says, um, your feelings are reflective of reality, which some feelings are and some feelings aren't. It is certainly not true that all feelings are. Um, so here we have Belle's aunt. So the, the, just so I have the distinction, it's affirmation versus validation. Yeah. And the affirmation, affirmative care model is what is being pushed as the only appropriate model now in medical and, and clinical and therapeutic settings, where you must affirm, you, you must affirm as reality, uh, whatever anyone says when they come into your office uh, in terms of what their identity is. So that's... It's affirmation. And validation... Is, okay, you're having those feelings, that doesn't make them reflective of reality. Yeah, that's... Uh... The, 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 the words aren't different enough to necessarily remember, but 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 it's, it's memorable... It's memorable that we can say, I hear you. Yep. I believe that you're having those feelings without then taking the extra step and saying, and therefore your feelings are reflective of reality. Yeah, it, it, it's unfortunately a little bit like uh, cosmopolitanism versus multiculturalism in the sense that the terms could be swapped right. and you have to remember which is which. Right. right. Okay, so back to this, um, this mother's story um, where Belle is the 16-year-old who has... Uh, gone five hours away to her aunt's house and her aunt is saying that she's going to provide unconditional love and to be accepted for who she was. And so she's now um, effectively helping her niece trans in um, socially um, and uh, ultimately chemically. Um, Belle's aunt cut off almost all contact with Belle's parents because they were not supportive of her transition. She feared that they would try to fix Belle. She believed their views were abusive and the cause of Belle's problems. She believed that she needed to protect Belle from her parents. This too is a theme that we hear over and over and over again. Uh, the system decides, uh, with the affirmative care model, the system decides it is the parents who know their child and who love their child deeply and who want more than anything to support their child and, and be close with them again and protect their child. The system decides that if they do not go along with a uh, sudden change of identity, um, that they are the biggest risk to the child and even the cause of the child's problems, which is it's just despicable. Last week, Bell was picked up by police under a special warrant and forcefully taken to a locked psychiatric unit. 
Over the last few months, she had been hospitalized twice for manic episodes and had developed an obsession with guns, knives, and violence. On her Tumblr account, she posted pictures of death, gore, and suicide, some of the vilest images on the internet, posting up to 100 pictures a day. In her diary, her aunt found something so terrifying, she called the police. Marla, the mom, prepared a letter. Um, I'm actually going to skip this part because it it goes on for a while, but she prepared a letter to read at the Risk Assessment Committee of Bell's High School. Um, But in the end, she decided... um, against preparing, presenting her letter to the committee because the school board supports the current transgender ideology. And if she'd read the letter, she knew she would be viewed as abusive and blamed for causing Bell's problems. Um, instead, she sat quietly and answered their questions, being careful to refer to her daughter using the new boy's name and male pronouns. After the meeting, the principal commended her for making the effort to accept her daughter for who she was and to love her unconditionally. And actually, presumably it was for who he was, right? Because it's the It's the delusional principle saying this. Marla's sister, the aunt who helped this teenager transition, will not allow Belle back in her house out of fear for her own safety. So the aunt helped create a monster out of someone with known mental health problems and now is washing her hands of the whole thing. So Belle is now homeless, living in a city five hours from her home, in a city where the only person that she knows is her aunt who will no longer let her enter her house. And the final paragraph is, Marla, the mom, sleeps with a little bag packed, ready to leave at a moment's notice. She's waiting for the call, from whom she does not know. The hospital? The police? The school? She does not know, but she knows it will come. And so she waits. It's terrifying. This mother is having a very particular and individual experience. And this experience is repeated with slightly different details, with largely different details, over and over and over and over again because of what we are letting happen. Because we have principals and school boards and therapists and doctors who say affirmative care model is the only thing. And if you feel like a donut today, you're a donut. And of course, if you said donut, it wouldn't work. But the only way this, the only one that they believe is, I feel like the sex I am not. And, you know, as is obvious, as I said in the talk that I gave here, as we have said many times, there is very little that is binary in biology. There is very, very little that is binary. But sex is the exception. Sex is binary. And in our lineage, um, you cannot switch what sex you are. We have chromosomal sex determination. And the sex that we are is the sex that we are. And we can play around gender norms as much as we want, honestly, um, but that doesn't change the sex that we are. So um, at the point that Bell uh, became focused on violence, yeah, what was the level of her so-called transition? I believe it's not it's not in this letter, but I believe from talking to her mother um, that she was on testosterone. So there's a, it's obviously implicit in in what you described, but the idea, I mean, let's just first be clear about the biology here. Yeah. Your parents are the best shot you have at somebody who is truly on your team at the highest possible level. And the reason for that 
is because each one is 50% genetically related to you. And while that is true, statistically, of your siblings as well, your full siblings, they are also your competitors, in a manner of speaking. Yeah. And that is not to say that siblings do not overwhelmingly have each other's interests at heart, but it means that there is a well-understood conflict that comes uh, from the fact that resources are limited and in any case. Your parents are also a generation removed, which basically their hope of getting their genes deeply into the future, which is, of course, what they are wired to do, whether they know it or not, um, goes through their children and then their grandchildren. Mm -hmm. So while you cannot be certain, and there are lots of bad parents out there, your parents are the best shot at having somebody truly on your team until you sign up with a partner. And if you do it right, Mm -hmm. then that person becomes truly on your team because their best shot at getting their genes in the future depends on your partnership. So what is happening here is that the state is participating in a rebellion against parents that liberates people who are not in a position. I mean, these are people who are specifically going to be unwell by their own definition. Mm -hmm. If you're born into the wrong body, that's not well. So the point is, if that's what you think you are, you're telling us that something is way off. Mm -hmm. So the state is emancipating people who are in this precarious state. Um, The chemical fact that somehow in emancipating people that the state is participating in requiring affirmative care, another label doesn't fit what's in the box, um, is going to result in a disruption of people who are unwell in a direction that at least some of the time is going to lean towards things for which this person has no developmental capacity to control them because they're not native to that person. Mm -hmm. So it's not surprising at all that this would be a result. Doesn't mean it's universal, but it means it's certainly on the list of possibilities that you would expect to see. Further, and I think you were very early on spotting this, the degree to which there's a standard pharma ploy in here. The idea of, hey, we can define something that is commonplace, let's say gender dysphoria, we can define it as a malady for which we just happen to have a chemical treatment, and what we need is an immunity from the consequences of administering this uh, super weapon that is not targeted right? We don't know enough about biology to intervene post-development to change your sex, even if we understood what that meant, right? We just have blunt tools at best. Um, But the idea that pharma is going to create a pathology, right? Why do I say create a pathology? Because we know that most people who have gender dysphoria as young people grow out of it. So why aren't we letting them grow out of it? Because we're obligated to help them become who they really are, as if that makes any sense. And if you transition and do not desist or detransition, you are a pharmaceutical customer for life. Right. A pharmaceutical... You are a patient for life and a pharmaceutical customer for life. And that is a win for the pharmaceutical company and a lose for you. Yeah. It's a kind of um, chemical brand loyalty. Um, and 
the idea that you have a mother who represents presumably many such mothers looking in horror at the fact that her emancipated child has now been interfered with is now a danger to herself and others and is in no position to do anything about it because the fact of that emancipation means that a parent in a very difficult situation doesn't have the tools to to address it so you know what what is the obligation of society to the potential victims that this person might go after because of their delusional violent fantasies right those people at this moment are walking around unaware that there's a ticking time bomb out there without a home uh having uh violent fantasies i mean this couldn't be more obvious and yet we're going to continue to do it it felt at this conference and I, I will come back and talk a bit more about some of the um more hopeful things that i heard um on our next live stream next tuesday um but it did feel like the tide is turning a bit. As much as uh, we heard public presentations and I heard many private stories about the, the grief and, and the, the wreckage that is being done in the name of science and medicine and equity and inclusion and I don't even know what, um, it does feel that many many people are waking up and seeing it um, at the same time that courts in many places are still you know, school districts and therapists and medical professionals and courts in many places are actually holding, holding children hostage, um, mm-hmm. allowing one parent uh, to destroy a child, even as much as presumably those parents don't think that's what they're doing but one parent to destroy a child while the other parent fights fiercely to not let it happen but because now the default assumption is if your child says they're trans and you say they're not you are wrong that has become the default assumption and that is horrible yeah um now i must say i think part of the reason that people are waking up is that um the blue team which cynically went along with this stuff yeah. uh has decided to distance itself from the woke revolution that it created and this is obviously uh, one of the major themes of that revolution but i also think what happens exactly when all of these people who have been led halfway through such a story are abandoned because suddenly the team that did this is pretending that they have no responsibility to these people who they have to differing degrees uh, destroyed. What comes next? Because those people have every right to be very angry. Yes. And there are lawsuits. The lawsuits are beginning, and that's that's a good sign too. It is a good sign, but I guess my point would be there are too many people who have been compromised at too high a level um and i think what we're going to see unfortunately is a rerun of the battle over people dying suddenly right people dying suddenly there is an absurd campaign to portray this as normal or the result of some mysterious thing that we haven't uh, figured out but it's nothing to worry about because you know it's either not happening or uh, you know, kids get strokes. I mean, it's just, you know, it's true, right? Um, 
that thing, these people are now going to be gaslit. That's yes. the point. And what happens yes. when you take a bunch of people uh, yeah. that you've chemically destabilized and you gaslight them over whether or not they were harmed? Yeah. Now, at the moment, the detransitioners are ignored and rebuffed and belittled. Um, but the transitioners, at the point that the tide turns, are going to be gaslit. They are going and, to be gaslit. And yeah. even worse, think about the various factions that um, owe them something. So many. You've got pharma which is going to be very focused on uh, its legal liability so it's going to have a massive campaign to prevent anybody from connecting dots that are sitting right next to each other well and i'm sure that there were a lot of things signed by people in desperation to finally have all of their problems solved by just taking these cross-sex hormones and that that releases liability i'm, I'm, I'm I'm whatever sure whatever whatever tools they could arrange yeah. they will have arranged yeah. those folks in the community of trans folks are going to reject these people at the highest possible level because, of course, detransition has always been the greatest crime. Mm -hmm. um, the people who went along with this garbage are going to play the middle ground scramble mm -hmm. thing, right, where they're going to, you know, find some mechanism for evading their own failures and responsibility. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, you, all of these people are going to be guests that and cut adrift from all of these people who owe them something. And, uh, you know, it's an unthinkable nightmare. It is. It really is. Okay. Um, I will come back on our next live stream with um, something that ends up just being so ridiculous that we have to laugh at sex equity for infant care. Um, let's say democratizing breastfeeding. You know, I'm prepared to laugh at it, but less so now that I know that it's the infants demanding it. Yeah. Yes. No, they are up in, mm -hmm. in arms and actually since they're unable to walk up in arms and legs over the inequities of breastfeeding yeah 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 well we'll, we'll go there next time um in the meantime we will do uh, a q a here all right shortly uh we'll come back in about 15 minutes and do a live q a you can ask questions at darkhorsesubmissions.com and here's just a little bit of other things about places where you can find us. Join us at Locals. We've got so many benefits and more all the time. We do. We put our uh, guest episodes that Brett has with awesome people up 24 hours early there. We do our private monthly Q&A uh, there on Locals. Uh, we did not manage while we were in Progress London together to do anything, but we do occasional impromptu Ask Me Anythings. Um, uh, you've done some. Zach and I did one. Maybe we'll do that again. That was fun. Um, and you can access our Discord server there. You can still access the Discord server on our Patreons, but we're encouraging people to move over to, to Locals. <clears throat> We've got, um, oh, Dark Horse Store, uh, where uh, Jake's Micro Pizza uh, is, uh, the t-shirts advertising Jake's Micro Pizza are available. You know, I will put on my mask when I'm done eating. You just can't see that I'm eating because the pizza is just that small. It's very small. It's very but tiny, but delicious. so good. Yeah. Yeah, so good. Hypoallergenic. Um, Oh, of course. Yep. Mm -hmm. Cheese-free, wheat-free. It's not cheese-free, man. We use right. only the highest quality cheese, but no wheat. Mm. I thought um, it was cheese-free. I thought, I thought you encouraged Oh, we have a cheese-free version. No. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah, it's uh, done with cauliflower. Mm. But, um, Excellent. all right, we'll get our ducks in a row on Jake's Micro Pizza here. Yeah, anytime. yeah, yeah. Um, because we just did the baptism of our book in Czech, uh, it bears mentioning Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century is now over two years old, but it's available in lots and lots of languages, including and, Czech. 
including Czech now. It's a bestseller in the Czech Republic. We didn't yeah. mention that. I probably have the page up somewhere. It's awesome. Um, uh, they also, Institute H21 also published Nadine Strassen's most recent book in Czech. Uh, so we are in good company. Lovely to discover a publisher that is actually so deeply involved in the work that's publishing it because they they care about it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and and what else? Maybe that's maybe that's it. We are supported by you. We appreciate you sharing and liking and subscribing, uh, especially on Rumble. Actually, you know, subscribing on Rumble, which is totally free, um, helps us out a lot. Joining us on Locals, which you can do free or paid, helps us out as well. And uh, and we we appreciate it very much. Until we see you next time, be good to the ones you love. Eat good food and get outside. Be well, everybody.